0: Hello and welcome to Process Transformers, the podcast that talks about business transformation and the intersection of processes and AI. For those of you who have listened before, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, thanks for tuning in. My name is Lucas Egger and I'm the head of innovation at SAP Signalio. I'll be your host for today's episode, titled Ex Machina, how AI will solve all of our problems And what caveats remain it's quite an honor as always in this case particularly today to have Christoph Bornstein who is president of digital strategy business development and growth in Germany at Omnicron and so many more things influential speaker offer investor most importantly a catalyst for change it's great having you Christoph thank you and thanks for all the kind words great being with you we talked about today's uh, title and it is quite a big and very aspirational title right now when we talk about the future of AI it feels like the conversations are pitted man against machine losing jobs you know losing trust I thought your the title you suggested was very uplifting where do you see this going and like uh, how do you see AI solving all of our problems
1: Quite an interesting one, specifically since you're starting with that. And being exposed with mainly the German and European discussion, you feel that this whole kind of desperation and understanding that as two different worlds of men and machine is a or men against machine is something that we see quite a lot. And I think overcoming that and overcoming that in a broader discourse, specifically when it comes down to digitally or technology-induced unemployment, which is a discussion that is still on the radar, that will be the kind of cultural unlock, the narrative unlock of of where we actually go. so, so we, I think, we have to accept a human beings will not be able to run quicker than the train. So we have to understand that that there's tools around that are simply capable of doing mechanical mm-hmm. tasks way quicker and way better than we are, and we as Europeans to a certain degree have to understand that that this is really not a problem, but it's helping us to overcome our demographic problems that we're seeing. We're having massive lack and shortage of labor and people doing administrative jobs and the likes. I've I've talked with the city office just recently, the administration, and they had six hundred open jobs in administration, and they now have created one hundred fifty new positions. Now they have seven hundred fifty people that they don't have. So I think embracing AI and embracing the power of Automizing tasks that we simply don't find people for in aging populations anymore, and that is that that is true for vast parts of Europe. Really, is where we need to go, and that is changing the narrative and really embrace what is coming—a mean of upkeeping our wealth, um, of upkeeping our competitiveness—as the mean of really creating value that goes beyond what we're just doing. And that, by the way, creating value, for me, includes value that is not monetary, but value that contributes inclusion, that works against polarization of society, and stuff like that. So talking about AI and education, for example, it's, it's always down, and specifically with that technology, down to what is the purpose of the use case that we're putting in place for, and how can we frame that into something that really... Help society to thrive rather than kind of goes the opposite route into the dystopian, we're all going to be slaves of uh, the machine.
0: Most of the utopian scenarios, because you just mentioned dystopias, right? <laughs> Most of the utopian scenarios from, from the past sound like dystopias today. So I guess my question here, because I really find it intriguing what you just said, what do we need to do to make sure that we're converging towards a utopia? Because what I also want to lay on is people don't lie about their fears typically, right? Emotions are true. So if people today are worried about, you know, losing jobs or that AI in some way takes over, we can disagree, but the emotions are still there. So how do you see that we can positively nudge it and also, where do you see for this discourse, where should it take place? Should it be products? Should it be a public discourse in an open space? Um, it's a very broad question, but, you know, I find it so interesting. And to some
1: degree, it really boils down to all of the above as the, the most appropriate answer to that. But but I think it, it, it's, t- it's twofold. I think changing the societal and even political narrative around progress and around the future in aging Western societies, really is the difference. I think that specifically for the for the kind of industrial leaders globally, that question boils down to what is the future holding for us, and is technology contributing to that future? And I think that that, that we kind of missed out on having a consistent societal dialogue going on on with that, which is quite obvious because we're talking about. Holy crisis all the times. So there's COVID happening. There's Ukraine. There's Israel. But the future as a general concept is not something that we keep as a societal discourse as well. That, that's kind of the highest level. So the elites in communication, like we're doing communication right now, should never kind of drop that topic um, that we need to kind of have a, a way back to a positive perception of what the future is going to hold for us. And the second thing is really experiences, creating experiences of contribution and looking into, and I think educational system is, is the most interesting part of that. Looking into most of the world's educational system, at least the Western world's educational system, nothing has changed much since industrialization. And so applying GPT um, on your homework still is defined to be a problem rather than something that's very smart. So the question really is, how do we blend new technologies, new capabilities, and even AI into the education process how do we help scale shortages and scarcity with teachers and um, that we see in most parts of western europe and how do we educate around that topic and i think education to to to, to big degree always is a, a kind of factor of the economical system that you're in and the economic system that our education system derives from is industrialization and the question really is how do primary secondary and tertiary education How is a technology age approach of educating people? And that will create the difference. So truly digitized education, true digital literacy, and yes, programming as a first grader's class is something that I would foresee as well.
0: You have tackled the perspective of, let's say, on the societal level, right? We are much concerned or focused on businesses and their processes. Would you say what you just mentioned and the changes needed, and the focus on education and overcoming old patterns, is, does that hold true to the microcosm of one corporation in the same way? Or would you try to advocate for this change, you know, as AI looms in a different way for corporations in particular, if I bring it down to that level?
1: Yeah. And a very fair question and the very sad answer is yes. So corporations as a kind of, as a subsystem of society are facing the same problems. And I can can call this out because she told me that in a public podcast that we did, I had a conversation with Ilke Hostmeyer, she's the CHRO, amongst other things, um, of BMW. And what she basically said is, in order to drive adoption across the whole team, across the whole organization, and even have... Look how the workers contribute from the value being created and from the is They are now rolling out a multi million education program, really basic digital education across all of BMW to create a kind of level playing field of digital literacy and have people being part of the whole thing. Um, so, looking into what we're seeing with the tools right now that are around, I believe that it's really down to people adopting and using those tools. And that is a broad undertaking and a mean of literacy. So to your question, yes, corporations, even brilliant global world market leaders in premium automotive are facing that problem because they get those people in that have been educated by an educational system that
0: is industrial age. And I hear, but maybe I'm like going too far now, that this is also maybe the competitive edge in this transformational process with AI. Because right now, when we're in the conversation, where can we create competitive, innovative advantage? Where are the modes, so to speak? We seem to either fall down to the infrastructure layer, you have to have the infrastructure, or, well, if you don't have the golden coffers of beautiful data, you will be left behind of this digital revolution that is called AI. from your side, I hear like strong like, like, uh, advocacy towards education will be the deciding factor. How do you think about these modes and the competitiveness? Do you see education as, as being the most important driver of success?
1: And let me give you a three-layer answer here. Um, so, so on layer one, it is a doctorate. So I truly believe that the, the most basic models, so the JetGPTs and the DALIS the standard diffusion, so the kind of generative things are giving you value through mass adoption. So it's not that you define a use case and then you kind of trim the model to that. It's really a put those models in the hand of people that will find the respective use case in their everyday work. And so it's really a, and you have read this article that I did as well, this is the kind of aspect that um, says, AI is the new personal computer, and 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 I very much agree on this level. But this is not the sufficient way of being more competitive um, uh, than than your um, your market. Then the two other layers come down to that. And layer number one is data accessibility. And So it's really a put an API to whatever data silo you have in your company, and so make that a knowledge management, knowledge sharing undertaking, and that is wherever you find whatever data, the middleware and the API needs to be in place to make that part of something that you can work with. And I I, I feel that th- this seems to be the concept that Microsoft Copilot is following right now. So th- their assumption is your silos are mostly organized in Word documents. So this is what we're going to help surface um, for you. And, and that's the kind of second layer. So it's not the kind of every People every person in your company um, undertaking, but it is most of them. So people that that work with knowledge and and the last instinct really is down to the more complex questions and the more kind of industry specific questions. So if you are a health company, it's not done with generic approaches and a generic model. It's really down to if if visual cancer detection is part of your business, me is whatever be the best in visual cancer detection and train the respective models slash build them. But this just the few companies where the competitive edge is going to derive from the model that they have. I think that the biggest part of competition really is the large scale adoption through accessibility of data to whatever model.
0: Okay, that's fascinating. So in a way, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I hear between the lines is, The competitive edge is also the adoption within the organization, which is on one hand driven by just execution and sanity, the literacy and the ability to execute internally, whether it's on data or APIs. But then mostly, if, if we can put it in that frame, the literacy and the ability of every employee to take part and create value. I think for some people that also sounds probably scary, right? How do I align my entire workforce if everyone now has way more potent means to express and create customer value, right? How do I make sure that everyone still works towards one goal? Is, like how do, you, how do you think about that?
1: It's really like like staying in the in the personal computer picture, and, and I think that 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 this is, is an interesting analogy here. So theoretically, I can do whatever I want to with a PC that my employer put on my table, but we found means of restricting use cases in a meaningful way towards the actual work environment. And I think that that that's really what we're going to see with LLM models as well. So Stable Diffusion, for example, with their on premise approach, already starts to Do brand or corporate trained models that are to somewhat degree caged. We see Palantir aiming towards something that is more a, we're going to put the model in a cage that is defined by your data.
0: I think there is an aspect of excitement and fun that is important to any transformation because you can appeal to the logic, to the value. It's always any transformation when you want to shift the process from A to B, you have to... Get the emotions as well, and I think we at times overlook that part. Is that also a reason why you tagged your your profile on the comedian?
1: <laughs> no, I think that's that's more coincidence. It's, it's really a if we understand AI and and chat systems um, to be tools, it's like it always is. Tools can be applied to whatever task. Defining the task where greatest value is given from 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 a corporation. And really, streamlining on guardrailing them will be the next step that we'll be seeing. And and it's early days. So 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 again, I take those picture generative models. We we see the first kind of use cases. Adobe Firefly is now bringing to the table with purposefully and individualized trained data just now. So so, so we really have to understand and accept that even the excitement is massive right now. The enterprise grade
0: applications of AI on those models. We're so early days. Mm. What do you think are like two questions that immediately pop up for me as a follow-up? What are the important guardrails? Are they like, you shall not do this? Or let's on a high level, like very abstract, like in what way would you frame them? Because, you know, it's easy to say what you're not allowed to do. It's harder to inspire people to do the right thing. And the second question do you see the drive of those guardrails coming from, let's say, private enterprises and sharing openly how they try to nudge? Or do you think regulation has to pick up the pace and, and help everybody to get like the overtone window of regulation set correctly?
1: And I think both is, is correct. And let me start with the, with the kind of regulation part. Questions on copyrights of people where the training data has been derived from questions around um, algorithmic transparency, decision transparency and stuff like that, I I would bet on the regulator to have rules on there because I think that that we need to have a kind of set code of rules when it comes down to who owns the copyrights and we're not there. So, so, so talking about AI generated pictures, we're still at a point where Yes, Adobe is declaring indemnification for whomever is using that but but they they have to because we don't have the regulation in place right now and, and being sued is just a possibility. so on the kind of governmental level defining those rules and defining the values and the ethics that sit in those rules will be something that we'll see and it will be there will be regional differences so we'll on one end see see a European way and we already know that regulations are on the way, there's going to be a Brazilian way um, and the US way, quite obviously, specifically when it comes down to how is transparency granted in AI-based decision making? How does the person, the subject that has been exposed to that, um, has to be informed about how a decision has been made? How do you inform the user of an AI model about bias that sits within the AI model? That's all regulation on a more governmental or regionalized model, if you talk about the EU. And then there is the kind of corporate rules that are not laws, that will be more, and he used the word, nudging-based. So I feel that it's always better in, in, in corporate situations when you incentivize the right behavior and not punish the wrong behavior. So showing people, and that's education again, how they can ease the burdens of their respective work by using models that automize tasks, that help them to do administrative tasks, and really make the user part of improving the job will be, will be the way ahead. And we've seen, by the way, just side note, uh, we, we've seen that happening in, in full-fledged with uh, low-code and no-code already. So the way of low-code and no-code companies is really a suck the user in by giving them the ability to solve their issues and not force them to use it.
0: Mm. You work with businesses in Europe, in Asia, and the U.S.? There's quite different approaches, right, from outright alignment of, let's say, ideological questions towards trying to figure out new regulation or to say like, hey, we have a framework and we want to adopt that and and maybe evolve it. Do you see like promising examples, whether it's on the corporate level or beyond that, that you're very interested in or that you're personally very engaged with that come to mind? So use cases, that, that's what you're asking for? Well, use cases or like how this can be done correctly, right? I think coming back to the theme of fear, setting rules, nudging, education, they're all like, it, those are hard questions, right? And I think we, we'll,
1: we'll again see two. and let me just focus that discussion. Asia is different to a to, to vast degree, but let me focus that on on the kind of comparison between U.S. and eu based models. I think where, where this is all going to end up, um, based on cultural history, and we've seen that happen quite a lot, is the U.S. will let change happen and will not preemptively regulate, but see what happens and then put regulation in place, which is the more kind of piloting prototype regulation that 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 we, we've seen in the social media age um, as well. So it, we're going to see that kind of barriers being stretched. And then after having understood what is possible, we're going to see a regulation um, defining the line. The European approach, and, and I'm a bit worried whether this is the right approach in this time, and we see a lot of initiatives that work against that, will be preemptive again. So, so we'll imagine a potential bad future that AI is going gonna, to gonna get us in, and we'll regulate against that even prior to that future happening. Um, so, so and, and this is the way I understand the regulatory moves that we're seeing with AI regulation already. And I think that, that we need to be very cautious here not to stop innovation by, by using that means. So so, that's really something that that culturally worries me, but, but seeing, seeing a situation where, where innovation is not happening because everyone's waiting for the regulation to kind of guardrail that. And that can even lead to, I And mean, talking with someone who works at SAP, that can lead to a situation that European tech companies are faced with with, with a competitive disadvantage because of
0: the regulatory ecosystem and environment being created. Mm. I want to connect this current conversation with the title Ex Machina because it is it normally describes a situation where you're a bit in a pickle, right? You are... You moved yourself into a corner in a play, and then there's divine intervention that helps resolve the plot or does something great, right. Um, where do you see your role? Where is what kind of divine intervention? where are you most excited to help with this entire body of transformation that's now needed?
1: I think what my role in in political conversations and in in in, in kind of leaders of economy and society is, is really trying to 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 come back to the original idea of what I as an '80s child have understood the internet to be. I think that even more so than the internet, AI has to be seen through the lens of how can we come to something that creates growth and inclusion alike. So, and and, and that. It, it it kind of got lost with the metas and the uh, Amazons and, and whomever in the internet, because we basically commercialized and monopolized vast parts of the internet and lost that perspective on inclusion. I think for AI and the AI age, that the jury is still out, uh, whether inclusion, whether individual grows, whether values are part of where, we, where we're moving with that. So on one hand side, I'm worried about the regulation, um, the use of um, putting in place. On the other hand, side, I do want to see a regime that helps to integrate and to include people that have been left behind. And, and, and the truth here is with what ChatGPT is doing right now, and I don't know if you've seen that ChatGPT's traffic broke down in the summer break in the US massively. It's a clear sign that educational purposes, wanted or unwanted, seem to be something. That are
0: projected on that and that for me is a mean of inclusion fascinating and i agree now as always i like to have at the end one question regarding what all the transformations that are necessary if you could magically change one process and you could help the world redefine one thing in terms of a process or how we do things what would it be and why
1: um, it, and, and I'm going back to, to, to the word that you used, nudging. I think what we can do is remodel processes to blend learning and nudging towards learning into corporate processes. So that, 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 the take that I have really is now that we can automate and personalize such a lot of things, work can actually be learning while working. And then the whole notion of Learning and growing while working is a mean of of aligning inclusion and in growth again. So educating people while they do their job is something where I would see
0: process transformation happen quite a lot. I think that's an incredibly empowering and powerful message. Where I'm a total
1: idealist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, sometimes you have to scratch the sarcasm, but you most always then find the idealist. And I think it's beautiful because we all do want to live in a future that that is more enriching, more empowering, and that uses technology for those means. And I think that's a perfect way of ending this conversation, even if we could easily extend it for another hour. People can best get in touch with you if they want to follow up on how to empower the future, I guess, through social media means or your column that you're writing. Either way, we will be listening to your further progress and how you help us to empower the future. Thank you so much for being here and being our guest today.
1: Thanks for having me. It has been a pleasure.
0: And with that, thanks for listening to another episode of Process Transformers. If you have questions or comments, email us at processtransformers at sap.com. Until next time for another transformative conversation.